Hello, this is Nick Holland with Information Security Media Group, and I am joined today by Matt Barrett and Joe Drissel, who are two of the co-founders of US Cyberdome. Matt, Joe, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. So interesting announcement, gentlemen. Uh, US Cyberdome announced the formation of the first ever information sharing and analysis organization for political campaigns, or uh, a PCISAO to use its acronym at this point. So just, just very quickly, what is US Cyberdome? And then quickly as well, what is a PCISAO? Yeah, the US Cyberdome, what we do is we protect political campaigns from cyber and disinformation threat. And we're doing that under the provisos of the Federal Election Commission's advisory opinion 2018-12, which permits um, you know, uh, donor funds and donations of products and services to political campaigns um, within um, uh, the, the legal structure of federal campaign finance law. So drilling down into the PCI cell, um, Joe, what's that again? The PCI cell is a place for the organizations within the election vertical to have an opportunity to share uh, threat information or lessons learned uh, amongst each other in a in a protected way. So, for example, we can anonymize the information and share threat intel between the campaigns uh, and establish that conduit so that if one threat uh, has a, a, a creates a problem for one organization, we can mitigate that threat in a, another organization. That facilitation of sharing. Um, sometimes it is set up through what's called an ISAC, which is a critical infrastructure sharing organization. But in this situation, the campaigns, because of the way the campaign finance laws are configured and, and the way that the elections are run, they're sort of out on an island a bit. So we decided, hey, let's create this place where the organizations can share. And that's the PCI cell. So... I mean, I think a fairly obvious question then is, I mean, this sounds very laudable, but I, I, I'm hoping everyone would play nice here in the uh, sandbox. So, I mean, fundamentally, is it realistic to expect that political campaigns are going to share cybersecurity information? So, again, we, we, we've seen other verticals that have uh, done this in the past. So, you know, it's been successful over there. Uh, you know, the other, there are 16 or, or 17 other critical infrastructure sectors that, that do this. They're, they're also in certain situations competitive with each other, but they still under, uh, understand the value of anonymizing the threat intel and sharing it amongst themselves uh, so that they can operate and focus on the things that they're really meant to be doing, like in the case of a political campaign, running for an office and not, not necessarily spending all their time focused on a uh, cybersecurity threat. Matt, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add to that. Yeah, this is Matt. I just wanted to also say that we have a lot of reason to believe that the that homing the PCI sale in a nonprofit uh, gives it the best possible chance for um, true collaboration amongst the campaigns on on not only cybersecurity threats but also but also cybersecurity best practice sharing. After all, we are uh, nonpartisan uh, in our approach to the world. Uh, and um, and also nonprofit, right? So there's uh, uh, kind of little to fear, if you will, in sharing information homed out of a not-for-profit. Yeah, and, and, and you, again, you'd expect bipartisan support in this as well. I mean, clearly, I think you know, even 
you know, within a democratic or Republican collective, it, it might be fine to share. But you, th you think this is going to get bipartisan support as well? Yes. And part of the thing that I'd offer up as evidence is when you look at, um, you know, the, the, the issues that our Congress is uh, processing and you look at things like the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus, which you see is a lot of collaboration across party lines on the topic of cybersecurity. It's such an immense challenge that the collaboration is is really demanded. Okay, very good. So it's a very different world all of a sudden. So, I mean, we were, many of us at the RSA conference two, three weeks ago, um, and now we can't really leave our homes. So, you know, obviously the coronavirus crisis is, is front and center right now. So I was gonna ask, I mean, what, what kind of nation state interference and or disinformation do you think we're going to be seeing with, with the current crisis? Well, unfortunately, a trend that Joe and I very much anticip anticipated and are starting to see evidence of various various ways, shapes, and forms is um, those who wish to do us harm certainly choose moments like this to do so. And so we are we are seeing that it's evident it's evident in media reports uh, as well of increased um, cyber activity. And, and do you attribute this to nation-state attacks, or is this uh, just just general, you know, opportunism based on the state of uh, the, the the current global crisis? Yeah, it's definitely opportunism, and opportunism uh, by nation-state uh, actors is anticipated. Uh, we certainly also anticipate uh, opportunism that's more in the fiscal gain dimension, for instance. Joe, right. do you have anything to add to this? Yeah, so, so this is Joe. Yeah, I, I think we're going to see it across the board. Uh, there's a couple of things. As people have moved their volume of work online, we're going to see more opportunistic attacks with regard to that. So I just, I just, I, I foresee that across the board, there's going to be an uptick across all actor levels, whether it's a, a, um, a local actor or a foreign actor, I think we're going to see an uptick. And we, we, we already have. Um, some stuff will, will start to filter out into the, into the public via news. Some of it already has. Uh, there was an event on Sunday, apparently, that was related to uh, a three-letter agency within the government. So uh, again, I think we're going to see an uptick across the board. And, and we've already seen it um, uh, on our, on our our fronts, the areas where we are monitoring things. We're in a situation right now where, again, we're under various types of lockdown, whether that's, you know, total stay in place or shelter in place, or, you know, the very best case scenario, we are allowed to mingle between very small groups. I mean, can we even have an election in November with social distancing in place and, and then really no reliable means of remote voting other than postal ballot, which clearly has a high degree of latency with it? So this is Joe, and and yes, I I actually believe we can we can hold an election. Uh, I do I do think it's going to require some forethought. I do think it will uh, require some innovation, and I also think it will require some um, additional dollars to be put towards it. You know, the the absentee ballot uh, process is pretty mature in in a lot of the states, so that is one option. Of course, that may reduce the number of people that vote. So if you want to get the volume up, they may need to come up with another solution. The biggest concern that I have is in a lot of these situations, and you'll find this in the cyber, in, in the IT community, and in particular, the cybersecurity community gets a little uh, worried about these kinds of situations, is that we move quickly to 
create a solution that we don't properly assess from a cybersecurity perspective. And that opens the door up for, you know, all sorts of things to go sideways on us. So if you, if you really think about it, you know, there's a way to do this if they think about it now and they start working on it now. There's a way to do this and make it happen right and maybe just work on getting the word out to folks, hey, you need to get an absentee ballot, get them into the mail, make sure people have an opportunity to return them. And and also let's look at the the other things that maybe we can do to make it easier for people to vote online. Yeah, Matt here. Let me let me chime in on that one. My background at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, participating in such projects as the voluntary voting system guideline in support of Election Assistance Commission, we are seeing this increasing trend toward voting and voting, you know, an app-based sort of voting versus a voting machine sort of voting. So this is a, that's more of a statement on what the future may hold and where we may need to focus as a society so that for parties that can't get out to vote, they still have the opportunity to do so. Um, Absentee ballot is certainly a great idea. In the short run, there may be a more of a real-time way to do that in the future because, after all, there's a lot of our society that can't get out to vote, and it, and it's and it's not about a pandemic. It's about uh, a whole bunch of lifestyle sort of factors, and sometimes folks just can't get out to vote. So, right. I think we, increasingly we need to embrace those sort of technologies to increase the the amount of votes. But uh, yes, I think that, that I agree. I mean, this this might be an interesting fork in the road where we really start thinking about the enablement of digital technology for for robust elections. I could ask you both, are there any particular technologies that show any promise for this? I mean, there are a great many, and the good news is that some of the technologies that Joe and I have been studying now for, you know, a couple of decades across our careers are perfectly, perfectly applicable. And some of the, and, and there are some newer technologies that we, that we hear about that are more topical, you know, such as your blockchains that also have a, have a place in this world. Matt and Joe, thank you ever so much for your time today. Um, that is Matt Barrett and Joe Drissel, both of whom are uh, founders of US Cyberdome. And for Information Security Media Group, I'm Nick Holland.